listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Karina Longworth, who is the host and creator of the show. You must remember this. It's a, a truly excellent long-running film podcast. Uh, if, you, if you're not aware of it, oh boy, oh boy, there's a whole bunch of episodes waiting for you. Just incredible uh, seasons worth of uh, content that we'll, we'll talk a bit about in the course of this conversation. Uh, in this episode, we talk a lot about her current series, which is called Erotic 80s, uh, just wrapped up actually as, as I speak to you, and uh, will become Erotic 90s in the autumn. Uh, we talk a lot about Madonna in this, we talk about art school, we talk about uh, the real world, the, the TV show. Um, there's going to be a, a separate little bit uh, of this that's going to be on the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash fluxblog. It's going to be on the Patreon this coming weekend where we talk about old magazines because we're both vintage magazine collectors. So uh, you got that to look forward to. And uh, yeah, this is the next week's episode is going to be with Brianna Chang, who is a uh, A&R person for 4AD. And we'll talk a lot about uh, the world of A&R. So uh, talk to you soon. Karina, can you tell the people who you are and what you do? My name is Karina Longworth, and I'm a film historian, and I am the creator, host, um, writer of You Must Remember This, which is a podcast about 20th century Hollywood. Yeah, I've been a listener since around the time it started. Oh, cool. I remember even back in the days when you could still use like Sonic Youth and Stereolab music cues. (laughs) Well, I probably couldn't, but um, (laughs) I actually ended up re-editing the first 10 episodes once I started having advertisers um, to take out a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic, but, you know, (laughs) obviously... Maybe the was the would you consider like that first season just kind of like doing like done in ones? Yeah, yeah. I was because I I didn't really you know I completely started this as kind of a DIY thing and I didn't really have a plan and I just wanted to talk about things I was interested in, but I realized um, you know pretty early on that it was easier if there was some kind of organizing concepts. Um, Rather than just kind of having to start from scratch, researching each story, you know, week to week, Um, because I have a little bit of help now. But for the like in the beginning, I was doing absolutely everything myself, um, doing all the research, all the writing, even doing the editing. And luckily, I was able to push the editing part (laughs) onto other people. That was kind of the first thing I got help with. And now I have a little bit of help with the research. But I still I was going to ask whether, whether what part of that got delegated. Yeah, definitely the first thing that got delegated was editing because I'm not a professional audio editor. Um, and, you know, I think my show is a little bit more um, uh, editorially intensive than a podcast that's people talking to each other. Um, oh, yeah. So that was something where it was just I couldn't do anything else with my life when I was editing the show in addition to writing it and researching it and recording it. So I was lucky to be able to, you know, hook up with a podcasting network um, after I had done it, like, I think maybe 35 or 40 episodes. And they were able to, that was the first thing they were able to help with. And then once they started doing a good job of selling ads and I was making a little bit of money, then I could sort of bring in people 
on a part-time basis. And so there's two people who work for me part-time all the time. One person does primarily like social media stuff. And then the other person does a combination of administrative stuff and research help. Um, and occasionally, like for the polyplat season, I needed way more help than that because there were all these interviews to transcribe and stuff like that. So I would bring in people on kind of an hourly basis for that. But I still kind of do the bulk of it myself in terms of research. And the most, I mean, the current season, I guess it's, it's kind of a two-part epic season, like the erotic <laughs> 80s, erotic 90s. This is, I was kind of going through uh, just the list of all of the seasons you've done. And it's like, this is really like the most contemporary history you've done it's definitely the history that you lived through and yeah uh, the polyplat season goes into the 80s and 90s but it you know starts in the 50s so um this is the the first season where it's kind of almost all of it is in my lifetime how has that been for you to, uh, kind of looking at kind of the, an adult world of your childhood it's been interesting. I think it's definitely the most personal season. And, you know, not only do I talk about my memories of these films and these stars from when I was a child, but um, I'm sort of talking about things that I find attractive, which is not something I ever thought I would do. Certainly, it's not something I ever would have done when my parents were alive. <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> things you can sort of only do in middle aged when there's sort of nobody left to judge you. They could never know about your adult crush on Kevin Costner. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, absolutely not. No, I could never. Well, I couldn't say that anybody was a sexy daddy type when my actual father was alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way with my family. I, I think I have this tendency to like, uh, it's strictly professional around the family. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, I guess there's, there's two things that will come up in your season that I think are really interesting. First one, actually you just bring up in this most recent episode and kind of connected to Kevin Costner is you mentioned in passing, like how much of a hold Madonna had on you. Um, I guess th <laughs> yeah. and this would be like in the peak era of Madonna in like the, the mid to late eighties, early nineties. And I would love to hear more about that. Like your experience as a young Madonna fan, because it sounds like it's more intense than it might've been for others. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't, I was only so intense for me because it seemed like she was so important. Um, you know, it was it was intense to me after it was intense to other people. I probably um, didn't really know who she was until like a prayer um, or I, I had an idea of her. But that was sort of the first album that I owned. I owned it on cassette. Um, and my mom had been somebody who was sort of like, oh, Madonna, like up to that point. Um, but with Like a Prayer, I think she sort of was more begrudgingly respectful of, you know, it was clear that there was a kind of different level of artistry, I think, to that album than what Madonna had previously done. Or at least I think people were more willing to take her seriously. Um, so that was kind of the start of it for me. And um, it coincided with, you know, around 1988, 1989 is when I got really into MTV um, I think that was it, the second thing I wanted to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my, my little sister was born in 1987. And at that point, like my family sort of like the household became more chaotic, you know, because you have like a seven year old and you have a baby. I and, had a similar experience, but my younger brother was born in 88. Yeah. 
And so nobody was paying as much attention to what I was doing. And so it, there used to be very strict controls on what I was allowed to watch and what I was allowed to see. And then, you know, by like 1988, I was alone almost all the time. And when I was alone, I was just watching MTV. Um, so, yeah, I you know, Madonna was just the queen of MTV. She was just it felt like she ran the network. <laughs> it felt like the network existed, like to give her a platform. And uh, in my mind, she was making the best videos. Of course, like that, like a prayer era, most of them were directed by David Fincher, um, with the crucial exception of the like a prayer video directed by Mary Lambert. Um, and so as somebody who already liked movies, um, these were like, you know, these mini cinematic experiences for me. So it was exciting on that level but then it was also exciting on the music level and then you know as I you know I guess it's kind of implied in that clip from Truth or Dare that I play like she was like my guiding light in terms of of breaking open a world of adult sexuality as well and so if she thought that Kevin Costner was lame I thought Kevin Costner was lame yeah it's funny there's there's a few people like that through that period of time into the 80s and early 90s where I think I don't think Madonna quite had the same kind of impact me on that level, but she did. But like that thing of like, oh, okay, that person's not cool. If Thurston Moore doesn't think this person's cool, then if Kurt Cobain doesn't. Yeah, that would come for me in a couple of years. But Madonna was sort of the first one. And and I think I thought I was going to talk about this a little bit more on the podcast. Maybe I will more in erotic 90s when it comes time to talk about like body of evidence. Um, but... I was so I I it, I was so convinced that Madonna was just, you know, she was such a role model for me in so many ways that I think I got kind of a skewed idea of what the culture found acceptable in terms of um like women being sexually forward. Um, you know, when you're being inundated with a song like Express Yourself when you're 8 and 9 years old, um, a it's song shaped... with really good advice, by the way. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily <laughs> for an eight or nine like, year old, <laughs> but it you know it gets deep in your in your psyche, and then when you're fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and like having these early sexual experiences, you don't understand that like the fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old men that you're um, <laughs> encountering are like not ready for Madonna. You know, they're not ready for you to express yourself. That's and- that's kind of what I was going to ask you. Like, how did Madonna, uh, like, yeah, because that's because that's a very bold person to emulate yeah, I think at any I age, just, really. You know, I mean, even when I w- had like moved over to being interested, more interested in indie rock and Britpop and stuff like that than I was in Madonna, Madonna was still making great music. It was that at that point it was Bedtime Stories, which is a fantastic album. So she's still cool to me. Um, and yeah, I, I just I, and it wasn't just her. I mean, I think some of these movies, too, had a similar kind of impact of, you know, Sharon Stone was somebody who I thought was extremely cool when I was a preteen and young teenager. Um, but I just didn't really understand that, like, you know, young men ha- had not evolved to the point of necessarily being ready for that kind of of sort of sexual persona coming <laughs> from a young woman. And and to be honest, like, I didn't I had trouble with that beyond my teenage years, way into my 20s, um, like trying to reconcile these ideas that I got from popular culture from people like Madonna at a very young age with, you know, what seemed to be like 
a double standard in society and, and with the actual people that I was trying to be involved with. In processing Madonna like that, uh, what do you, do you think was kind of like the, because you're kind of getting into like how it became a complication, how it became confusing to other people. <laughs> but like what, like what was kind of like the more positive uh, manifestation of Madonna and I guess Sharon Stone for you? I mean, Madonna, another thing that she made seem very cool to me was being into classic movies. Um, she, I, you know, I did podcast episodes about this, but um, she's constantly referencing like the cinema and the stars of the golden age throughout her yeah. um, body of work. And, you had, know, had you I, seen Metropolis before Express Yourself? The of video course not. I was like yeah. eight years old or nine years yeah. old, depending on when in 1989 that came out. Um, and I just, yeah, I mean, even like the Vogue rap where she just names all the stars, that was ha the, like the first time I heard the names of many of those stars. And so then I could go to my local video store and be like, where are the Marlena Dietrich movies? Where is the Lauren Bacall movies? Um, so that was very influential. And then with Sharon Stone, I mean, I just think that she seems so... She was br she was actually bringing, I think, like an old school Hollywood glamour into the 1990s in a way that not everybody was. Um, and that was very exciting and alluring. And she also just seemed to not give a shit about anything, which, you know, Madonna is the same way. And so those were two kind of icons of womanhood in the 90s that I found very appealing. There's something really interesting about that era to me. I think in MTV and a lot of the film, certainly in the magazines of that era, which I've collected pretty extensively, mm -hmm. um, where you have like this combination of these kind of bold characters like them and, and others, but also you have this kind of move towards this very kind of classic photography style. I think the, mm -hmm. the, the thing that really comes to mind is like Herb Ritz, like that kind of energy. But, but there's also this kind of aspirational kind of quality to everything. Yeah. I, I can't remember what magazine it is, but somebody started like trotting out James or George Harrell at the end of his life to actually, you know, photograph Drew Barrymore or whoever. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that I do think that became a very class, a very common style at the time. Um, yeah, it's it, it it's interesting. I mean, you know, there's the whole thing about um like the 80s being sort of obsessed with the 50s. And in a lot of way that, ways, the 90s were obsessed with the 60s and 70s, especially in, in rock and roll, I think. Um, but there's also elements of the 30s. I mean, like a certain kind of like Bob haircut came back. And, um, yeah, I think like definitely and then, in the visual course, like, stylists. Of, I, think it's, I think particularly like the first maybe third of the 90s. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, the swing revival happens yeah. later yeah uh, yeah i guess a, a different kind of manifestation um mm -hmm. yeah I, I think another thing that i really pick up from that era of is kind of like reabsorbing like this media from uh, my youth my childhood whatever is it really seems like adulthood is a lot more prized in that period of the, the late 80s through uh early to mid 90s than it has been since. And I think even a little bit before, because I think the mid 80s definitely, you know, it, it tips a little more teen word. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there is this feeling that the, the aspirational state to be would be like maybe your late 20s, early 30s. 
<laughs> yeah, that seemed to definitely be what was centered in culture. Um, whereas, like, then when I was in my mid-20s, you know, around 2005, it just felt like movies were not about people my age at all. It was like yeah. a cutoff, where, like, like between high school and, like, 40s. There was nothing. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I, think, I think we're about the same age, maybe, like, within a year or something. I don't know. But it is that thing where it's like there, there's this real flip of a switch that happens around 98, I think where the culture just really decides, oh, you know, we've been doing this all wrong. We have to <laughs> orient this much younger and then make everyone want to be younger longer. Yeah. Interesting. And, I mean, I guess that's when yeah. Britney and, and the boy bands start happening. Yeah. And that, that's just kind of the beginning. Exactly. I mean, that's definitely where MTV completely reorients, for sure. And the, the whole culture of the channel changes pretty radically by the late 90s. Yeah. You know, right now they're doing that reunion of the New Orleans season of The Real World. I, I have I been was, watching that. <laughs> I was a huge real world person, but somehow I just missed New Orleans. And like, did it did they do New Orleans? Was that chronologically before Hawaii or after Hawaii? I think it's oh, good question. I think it might be before. I, I believe that one came out in 2000. Hawaii was 98. Okay, so I guess it's after I, that. As soon as I turned 18, I sent him my video to audition for The Real World. Oh, no I kidding. Obsessed. I was obsessed with The Real World. And the, the season that I was not selected for, not called back for at all, would have been the Hawaii one. So that was 98. Okay, gotcha. There's the, I know that the season, I think maybe the one immediately after New Orleans or one after was like one of the, the girls I went to Parsons School Design with was in that one. Oh, wow. And that, yes. was, that was a little surreal to observe. So I don't know if it was because I felt so personally slighted that they weren't interested in me, but <laughs> Hawaii was the last season that I paid attention to. And now that I'm seeing all this sort of, you know, culture or content around the, the New Orleans reunion, like I wish I had seen that season because it seems like exciting or interesting things are happening. It's definitely one of the better ones, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and... I don't know. I think like part of the reason I've enjoyed watching a bit of that reunion and I, I haven't really seen the other two. I, I just recently picked up like a, a subscription to that one, like Paramount. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's only so much time in the day. But I think part of the reason I liked watching that as, I ha as much as I have is like, oh, these are like people around my age on TV. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because like I, I think my eyes can roll a bit sometimes like, oh, I just want to be I just want to feel seen. But it's like, no, I like being seen. We all do. <laughs> yeah. But, and also, I mean, it might be different for me as a woman, but I have a I'm having a real issue um, with aging in a world in which we don't see aging. We don't see mm -hmm. natural aging at all. And so if I could see like 42-year-olds who actually look like 42-year-olds, that would be very interesting. But there's not much of it in culture. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember why I brought up the real world. Sorry. <laughs> oh, wait. I, yeah. I, I have the back. I'm actually curious because you mentioned trying out for it. So what was your audition like? I think you have to make like some kind of tape. Like, this oh, is God. who I am. This is what my life's about. Yeah. I... I just basically, I was like packing for college, I remember. And so I had all my clothes in a big pile and I just like sat on the pile and I talked into the camera 
And I remember I was in this phase that lasted like two weeks where I was wearing a cowboy hat all the time. (laughs) And so in the video, I'm wearing a cowboy hat. And I just I'm sure I just didn't say anything interesting. I mean, you know, certainly at 18, like anything, the few things about me that were interesting, I was trying to bury and just sort of be normal and cool. And so I don't think I would have been as revealing as I should have been if I had actually wanted to get cast on The Real World, which I thought that I did. But then after watching that Hawaii season like that, they would have eaten me alive. Yeah. What do you think it would have been like to have actually been on it? I mean, maybe not the hot Hawaii one, but any of them, I guess. It seems like an odd kind of scrutiny to have on your life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, any I think any season after the first one is, um, you know, this strange hall of mirrors where everybody participating in it has seen a version of it and is caught between trying to be who they want to be seen as and who they really are. Um, What do you think the archetype you saw yourself as being in it? I guess I was trying to be art school girl. Okay. Um. And, you know, I don't know, Um, even I was about to go to art school, so I didn't really have much experience in being that. But that's what I was projecting myself as. And then I got to art school and, you know, it was pretty clear that I was like not um, as authentically art school girl as many other girls. (laughs) Which (laughs) art school did you go to? I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. I I think I already mentioned I went to Parsons. But Yeah. yeah, I think art school is a... It's a very unique version of school that it, sometimes, like, I, I think I get very excited to talk to someone who who went through it because it's, you know, I like when people talk about like regular college, I never really, I can't really relate. Do you? Yeah. No, I mean, we had no sororities or frats or sports. Yeah. I, mean, um, I, I deliberately went in that direction to avoid yeah. a lot of these things. Me too. And I, I just, I really, really wish I had taken a year off. Um, and gone when I was just a little bit more mature and it was less about just leaving home and and having some kind of independence because I don't think I took school nearly as seriously as I should have. And like I just I sometimes I'll have dreams that I'm back at that college just taking classes. And those are just the best dreams. <laughs> I just want to be able to like go through that course catalog as an adult and like make my schedule. I have some memory of there being, you know, a few random adults in classes. And God knows how old they probably were. They were probably like 32. Mm-hmm. You know? But when you're like 18, 19, that may as well be like 75. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I think everyone was always a little standoffish around the, the adult people who would be there. But I mean, those people must have gotten the best experience out of, of actually just like engaging with the material and, you know. Yeah, I, I remember the the slightly older people in my classes were always like the, they seemed like the most talented. Um, maybe they were just the most confident. But um, but then also I don't know if you had this at Parsons, but at the school I went to, there were definitely some professors who had been there for a long time who were you know real respected artists or academics um, experts in their fields who were in their forties or older. But a lot of the professors, especially because I was taking classes in things like video art. Um, a lot of those professors weren't that much older than us. You know, if if the class was 18 and 19, these professors were like 25, 26. Um, I don't remember the, the any of the teachers I had being terribly young. I think mm. they were mostly like pretty solidly in their 30s and 40s or older. But 
I, I think the, what, what, what you're saying, I, like my mind just kind of went in the direction of like, oh, I don't think any of us understood that a lot of these people were like successful artists. Yeah. You know, because you're going in with like, I don't, well, I don't know you. <laughs> but also like the arrogance of being like a, a, a like a like a teenage early 20s artist and especially being a young man I, I feel like I've I will never have the level of absurd confidence I had when I was like 19 oh, like I, I was completely obnoxious when I was 19 well that's another reason why I wish I could do it again is because I just like I look back and I cringe at who I was mm-hmm. I still feel like some of the work I made when I was 18 and 19 was kind of good um, certainly like the work I was doing in art school it, it there's a direct line from it to the podcast that I do now um, but I just wish Wait, I had been a so? better person. <laughs> um, so I was basically somewhere in between the video department and the film department. I was taking classes in both. At, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, you don't have to pick a major and you can kind of take whatever you want. Um, so I was really influenced by um, experimental nonfiction filmmaking and also video art. And um, for the bulk of my time in art school, I was making these sort of short videos that were um, kind of diary films, but they were mostly either directly about or very influenced by the films I was watching and the, like the media I was consuming. Um, and all you know, in most cases, the um, they consisted of a narration done by me, and that narration is extremely similar to the podcast except that i do more research now oh wow so okay that's a direct line yeah and wow. the, the visuals were um i would say 75 percent found footage sometimes manipulated found footage but found footage um and by found footage i mean like you know taking a vhs of a movie and dubbing it and then like messing with the footage a little um, and then 25% stuff I would shoot. And sometimes it was shooting myself doing things. Sometimes it was, you know, shooting sort of like the landscape around me, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, that, so that stuff is, you know, the podcast is almost that without visuals. Yeah. Um, have you had much any, more research. have you had any temptation to move to, I guess, or it's adding a visual component to the stuff you're already doing? Yeah. I mean, I've been pitching documentaries version, like documentary tv versions of the podcast for years and just nobody (laughs) wants to (laughs) buy it so yeah well that sucks (laughs) yeah and also the thing is is that though a part of it is that is the way i want to do it you know i don't want to do stuff with like talking heads of critics you know talking about why such and such phenomenon from the 1930s is important i want to do it like you know Chris Marker style or yeah I mean um, just just as you were saying it it just seemed pretty obvious just to have like kind of what you already do but kind of an interesting I think it's certainly kind of a 90s early aughts approach to the the video component that's mm -hmm. maybe more vibey than anyone would probably want at least on that kind of unimaginative uh you know tv level yeah totally I mean, my, you know, I've I made a huge mistake in um, going out and trying to pitch a show that was each true Hollywood story meets Adam Curtis, um, because anybody <laughs> yeah, I guess that's kind of what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah, because anybody who knows who Adam Curtis is in Hollywood just thinks that sounds expensive. Mm. That's yeah. I guess that's another point. The, the clearances <laughs> must be insane, especially because yeah. you're you're dealing with Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you did find like the most. Uh, financially uh 
easy way of doing the thing you're doing. Yeah. So, okay. So getting back into like doing this thing, that's like kind of covering, you know, your own lived experience in this, but I guess like from like childhood to teenagers, like how does, you know, how does that period of time look to you now as opposed to how it looked to you when you were a kid? Like, what do you feel like you see that you were completely oblivious to? Definitely the politics. Um, You know, in the 80s, I was aware that Reagan was president and that my parents didn't like him. Um, But that was as far as it went. Um, And so kind of understanding what Reagan America really was um, is something that I could only come to later. Um, And then all of the feminist stuff that I've been talking about is is stuff that I started to learn about in college, but don't think I really would have been able to have anything like the perspective and understanding that I have of it now before this time in my life and and before this time in history when just seems like we're repeating all of this stuff over and over again. Yeah, it does feel like there's this kind of like this inevitability of these loops. And maybe maybe not loops. That feels like so like, you know, like, oh, it just keeps... It's just more like, oh, you just start realizing that people don't change that much and you or even if the people on an individual level do there's always new people who just kind of do the same things that other people in the past did without necessarily realizing it or in a way in which it's like reagan saying i'm gonna make it the 50s again look we're doing that now but we're saying we're gonna make it reagan again you know right um and it's i just like this whole idea that we're absolutely in another feminist backlash right now between Roe versus Wade going away and, you know, this Johnny Depp thing. Um, and by Johnny Depp thing, I mean um, him winning his case oh, yeah. against Amber Heard and, um, you know, thereby opening the floodgates for men to sue women who have accused them of crimes. Um so, yeah. or not even crimes. I mean, like, I don't know if you saw that Brad Pitt just filed a lawsuit against Angelina Jolie for selling her stake in their wine company. I did. I, well, I did you know, I don't think I actually caught the wine company part of it. Yeah. That, that's I just figured it was part of, is. like, their ongoing divorce separation deal. The, which I guess it is, but. It is, but it's like he's basically using this as a way to tarnish her reputation so that. As I think, as a way of continually um, continuing to draw attention away from the accusations she made that were at the core of her divorce filing, which was that he was abusive to their son. See, this feels kind of Streisand effecty to me because yeah. I don't think a lot of people actually know about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, but I think that you can yeah. see how somebody like Johnny Depp. I mean the reports of Johnny Depp's bad behavior have been part of culture for 30 years. Oh yeah. Um, but he's able to just completely change the conversation with this court case. I, I mean, I think that the most stunning thing about it is just the realization of just how much people love Johnny Depp and not just it's Johnny insane. Depp, but like late period Johnny Depp. Yeah. Pirates. Yes. Those Disney movies really moved the needle more than I think I really realized, even though they made like, like seven of them. You know, I um, this might be like too far afield, but I'm just going to tell this anecdote. So I was sitting at the Burbank Whole Foods yesterday on the patio eating a salad and it was like a communal table situation. And so I was sharing my table with a white Gen X man 
and what seemed to be two of his female 20-something multiracial co-workers who did not want to be having lunch with him, but were like <laughs> suffering through it. And so he's trying to appeal to them, I think. And he says something like, you know what, guys, I think I'm anti-Johnny Depp. And they're like, well, did you watch the trial? And he said, no, you know, but I read these Twitter threads and, you know, it just seems like he's a bad guy. <laughs> and they are Amber Heard stands. And so they're like, well, if you'd watch the trial, you would understand that she's terrible and she deserves it. And and he, you know, very wisely, I guess, like quickly changed the subject. And I mean, it they suffered because then he just wouldn't stop talking about ordering Chipotle on his phone. But um I like was listening to this conversation. I texted a friend and I was just like, I can't believe the sort of generational divide that I'm witnessing here. And then I realized that I do understand it because I think that young people, people of a certain generation have spent the past five or six years coming to this point where they think that if somebody does anything that's sort of amoral or if there are any legitimate accusations against them, you have to cancel them. But they refuse to cancel Johnny Depp because they have these emotional feelings about him. And so the only thing to do is to say that these accusations against him cannot be legitimate. Do you feel like there's a lot of history of that, this repeating, where people people's general affection for a star just completely, I think movie stars particularly, just make it so like nothing sticks? Because I mean, I um, feel like, you know, I can think of like, I think the thing that immediately comes to mind is like Michael Jackson, where I think oh, people yeah, totally. even still have such a hard time fully backlashing on Michael Jackson. But there is a weird general cultural feeling about him still. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I um, when I was researching my podcast episode about nine and a half weeks, which deals with Mickey Rourke and allegations made against him by his ex-wife, Carrie Otis, I got kind of too deep into the Carrie Otis YouTube world, which is like every video of her talking about her relationship with Mickey Rourke ha is all the comments are just full of Mickey Rourke defenders um, and just some of the most brutal misogyny you'll ever see. And like, I don't know why these people love Mickey Rourke so much in the year 2022, but I guess the thing is everyone has a Stan army. Yeah. And or at least a lot of men do. I don't know. I don't know if there are female stars who have the equivalent, but I guess maybe Rihanna and Beyonce. I, I would say like most any pop star. Um, maybe maybe mm -hmm. it's different for actors. Yeah. Taylor Swift, I guess, has her stands. Oh, um, yeah. you Like, I mean, God, any, any of them, but I think especially Taylor Swift. You, <laughs> if you, if, if, if yeah. you say anything bad about her, like those people will haunt you down forever. I mean, I have a, a friend who's a writer and she... Just, it ne they never stop coming for her. And it was just like yeah. one thing and it was like pretty mild. But there's always going to be like some assholes showing up in mentions or DMs. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's I think there is kind of a larger stand psychosis around this. And I think the Johnny Depp thing is a version of that where I, I think the, you know, the thing that's more deflating about it is just like how much of the cultural part of it was just like, oh my God, especially on TikTok of just young women just like completely throwing Amber Heard to the wolves. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and the, you know, there's this whole thing of like, well, she's obviously lying. It's like, well, how do you know that? Yeah. Uh, what, what is so obvious about it? Yeah. Well, I think, I, I don't know. Are you, how familiar are you with like how TikTok is? Cause they'll have like these things where they'll just like become obsessed with, some random anonymous person and like trying to like figure out exactly what was happening in this one 
bit of footage. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the, it really brings out like uh, this horrible combination of uh, internet sleuth and gossip. Yeah, that's a, a funny way of phrasing it. I don't, I don't have TikTok, um, so I'm. Yeah, only it's weird for any it. of us to have it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm only. I, I take my to TikToks like out people. of context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm only exposed to it through people reposting stuff on Instagram. Um, so, and it, and I actually like, I've, I don't know, you know, as somebody in their 40s who's trying to like, I make one thing, and I'm just trying to get people to pay attention to that thing by any means necessary. Sometimes when something like TikTok happens, I think like, should I get on it? <laughs> and then it just seems it, like it would be so phony. Um, it seems like maybe your assistant should be, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much traction just like promoting like non TikTok content does. The, the algorithm is probably brutal to it. Yeah. It's probably a waste of time. I mean, God, I mean, all of these things, all of these uh, social media things are geared towards having the algorithms punish self-promotion. Mm. Yeah. It's it, it, to the point where like, I mean, I, I, I think uh, most of the promotion I do is this kind of where I already am. And it's like, okay, hey, here's a thing that I just made and it's no big deal. Just, do what you will. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean that's I why I've spent the most time on on Twitter, and that is also like where I promote myself the most. Um, just yeah, because it's like, yeah, like, trying to be on every platform is just too exhausting. Yeah, I think yeah, especially like signing up to join one <laughs> just for the purpose of really just yeah, you, know, you have to letting people know that you exist. Yeah, and you know, I feel like you know we're all maybe leaving money on the table or not even in my case I don't really make money it's like, <laughs> but it's like uh I mean I worked at BuzzFeed for several years so like I have like a, a pretty good understanding of how all of this stuff works and the like and also just kind of like how I mean just even just like these little microcosms of uh promoting this my own flux blog stuff uh, realizing, okay, yeah, the, the rules are always the same. Like the, the statistically, it's always the same that if something is popular right off the bat, it will remain popular in any version. And anytime you promote it, it will pop off. But if something does not like kind of click within like an hour, it has no hope. Like it doesn't matter yeah. how many times you promote it, it will never gain traction. Yeah. And it's just a weird rule. But it's just, it is just how it is. Do you feel like you uh, like how much do you think of the audience in terms of like the the decisions you make about the seasons and things like that? Honestly, I can't think about it too much because it it's the show is still so hard to make that I wouldn't be able to have the energy to do it unless I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, what that means is that some seasons are liked more by the audience than others. Um, but I think that there is kind of a core audience that even if they don't listen to a season right away because they think it's not for them, like they do kind of catch up with it eventually. And, you know, so much of what I do is try to explain to people why they should care about these things or why it's interesting. What have um, been the more popular ones? Well, definitely Charles Manson. Yeah. That's um, a, yeah. The, uh, the, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff one, I think, actually has the highest numbers ever. Um, and I think it's kind of a combination of horror people being very online and um, 
Patton Oswalt was on it. And so he has a big audience that just is interested in anything he does. And then also, um, you know, I kind of took a firm stance against Lon Chaney Jr. (laughs) in that season. And uh, so he has kind of a Stan army (laughs) that I think was pointing to it and being like, can you believe this bitch? Um, But so that that's kind of a surprise. Um, And, you know, I think that the Polly Platt season got a lot of attention as well um, and is definitely the one that people when people kind of, you know, see me in a public space, that's the one where they're like most often saying I loved that season. I think that's my favorite, too. And and also the current one. But that's the, the current one's like such a softball to me, honestly. <laughs> but the Polly Platt one, I think, is actually a really good example of what you're saying, where it's like I had only the dimmest awareness of her and her mm-hmm. career. So moving through it was like a revelation. Thank you. Um, and I figure that's probably some version of what people tell you. Yeah, yeah. I think people don't know that... They don't. They didn't know that she was involved in so many movies that people find to be, you know, either important or beloved. And so, once you have, once you listen to the season, then you can connect all those dots. And then all of a sudden, Polly Platt is everybody's favorite filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like that's. I mean, that's one of the most satisfying things about doing anything with history is having people understand like these contextual things through angles that they didn't think about. Yeah, um, totally. And it's I'm always and it's not even like I have to try very hard, but I'm always trying to talk about this stuff in the past and kind of explain why it's just like something happening today or why it can make help us kind of reframe and contextualize ideas that are in the public space right now. Did you kind of shy away from doing the more recent past on purpose or is that just like the, the your natural interest was more towards the mid-century? Um, I didn't do it on purpose, but I just felt like there was so much from the past that I wanted to know more about. Um, yeah. You know, I think that and I, the generally, I mean, I think that these movies from the 80s and the ones from the 90s coming up are an exception. But there are with the, the stories that, you know, span from, let's say, the 1920s to the 1970s, there are kind of more opportunities for me to see movies that I haven't seen. Um, which is kind of the sneaky bonus of doing this is, you know, just getting to like dive really deep into a filmmaker or a star or a genre or a year or whatever it is um, and just kind of make these discoveries of movies that turn out to be either great or terrible or interesting in whatever way. So, I mean, I guess like what you're on now is like just a committing to a pretty long one. I guess it's like, what is it going to be like 21 episodes or 22 episodes all told? Yeah, I haven't quite figured out how many episodes are going to be in the 90s. To be honest, I'm a little behind because the 80s season took me a lot longer to make than I thought it would. I mean, I'm still editing the final episode and it comes out in less than a week. Um, so, you know, part of part of the issue was that I had COVID twice while making the season. <laughs> so not it just, you know, that not only did it slow me down when I was actually sick, but I've been dealing with like the brain fog and the sort of sudden fatigue stuff. And so... I used to be able to just, you know, get up in the morning, start working at like nine and then, you know, work until like 7 p.m. And I just cannot do that anymore. And maybe that's good. You know, maybe that's sort of a sneaky benefit of long COVID. Um, But yeah, I just I can't work the hours that I used to work. So like how long of a break do you anticipate taking? Because it sounds like I mean, you can get away with a fairly long one, I guess. Well, the Erotic 90s was supposed to start in October. Um. 
And now I'm not sure because I, I have not started working on it at all. <laughs> um, I plan to start researching it next week. So I'm actually not going to take any time off at all. Um, but but I, you, you have the lead time, I guess, though, as far as yeah. like the editing process. Yeah. So um, I I don't I can't say I, I hope that we begin the season by November. Um, yeah. But I just I really do need to kind of the problem is, is that I before I can set a start date, I have to know how many episodes there are going to be. And I have to have an overall sense of of the the big picture of the season. Otherwise, so, I don't feel comfortable setting a start date. So you didn't just kind of like make a map of like, OK, so like what, what is basic instinct? Is that 91 or 92? 92. I do have a basic map. Yeah. Um, I know that the season is going to end with Eyes Wide Shut in 1999. Perfect. And I, I know <laughs> I know what the subjects of the first three episodes are. But it's kind of in between 92 and 99 that I'm not exactly sure how everything's going to be laid out. And I'm not sure if some years need more than one episode. I mean, there's I think it's 93 where it's like sliver, indecent proposal, body of evidence and like five other movies that could be subjects of this podcast. Right. Um, so you you know, the do I do a that. whole episode on Madonna? Do I do a whole episode on Sharon Stone? Um, how do I deal with this stuff? So I just have to I have to like dig into the archives and read as much as I can and just try to figure it out. I, su I suppose you could just break it in two if you really needed to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could the, do the like... Mid and the, the early 90s and the late 90s are, are pretty different vibes to begin yeah, with. Yeah, but what I like about doing a decade is kind of showing how the vibe shifts, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I absolutely relate. So. <laughs> yeah. Um God, I guess like is Wild Things ninety eight? It's um, I think it's ninety eight. Yeah. I recently rewatched that one, and that one I didn't remember. It, I, my memory of that movie was so vague because I think I saw it like twenty years ago. Yeah. But just like wow, that is a that is a wild ass film. <laughs> yeah, I haven't rewatched it yet, but it's it's definitely on the list of something that I think could be interesting to take up a whole episode um, there's a plot twist in that movie like every 15 minutes it's just <laughs> like like people simply do not make things quite like that anymore on any level really yeah it's also like the most like almost disgustingly florida thing that's ever been made <laughs> actually there's this movie that i'm going to talk about in the finale of erotic 80s called masquerade with oh, rob I don't know that. do you know Who's that, in that it's rob lowe meg tilly um, Doug Savant from Melrose Place. Wow. Um, and it's that's a movie that has a plot twist like every 20 minutes. It's kind of the same plot twist that keeps happening over and over again. But um, it's I, I think it's really fun. Is, is it like an unveiling that like masquerade would kind of imply? So it's just basically like there's obviously a plot to kill Meg Tilly. But like the plot keeps changing in terms of like who is in on it and why. Oh, OK. Uh, that's a good sell. I should, I should figure <laughs> out where that's uh, on right now. God, that, that's a, that's the most annoying thing about things now is it's like wh where okay where can I watch that where can I know it's it, it's the thing that makes it completely different from music where it's like okay yeah it's on Spotify or YouTube and if not there it probably it barely exists. Yeah, I mean sometimes these movies that I you know want to include in the show. In order for me to watch them, I have to like track down a Korean bootleg DVD. And so there's not going to be any way for people to really watch them within the week that the episode is new. What was the most elusive film for you? 
Um, the, there is one that I had to like ask somebody to get through illegal means <laughs> that I talk about in um, the final episode. And it's like, it feels like a, it was sort of a waste of time for me to even, once I watched the movie, it felt like kind of a waste of time. But it's this movie called Scandal. And it's a like an early Miramax film um, starring Joanne Whaley Kilmer while she was still married to Val. And it's about the Profumo affair, like the British sex scandal of the 1960s. Wow. But I, I had to felt like I had to watch it because the finale of Erotic 80s, a lot of it is about sex lies and videotape and why, why and how Harvey Weinstein and Miramax were able to make it this kind of cultural juggernaut. And so I had to talk about like where Harvey Weinstein was coming from in terms of marketing movies about sex. Mm. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It, it, the nineties is going to be a, a, a very interesting season. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Uh, before, before we wrap up, I want to circle back to MTV mm-hmm. and I think particularly in the early parts of the eighties the season is the, is the thing that comes up a lot and you, you get into like how it's kind of a ridiculous claim, but the idea that like, oh, everything's like MTV now. <laughs> um, and where do you feel like there's an arc for that where like, because if it's Body Heat that has the, Frankie uh, uh, goes to Hollywood, right? Body Double. Body Double, sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, the body, 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 body. Yeah. Evidence, you know. <laughs> um, Right. And and that's a fantastic thing where it's basically like a music video that's kind of dropped into the middle of the movie. Yeah. But I mean, that's and that seems like a, that's a fair claim. But like, what do you think MTV meant to people in the mid to late 80s? Like, was it simply um, just like the cutting style? Y- you know, I quote in the episode that I did about Flashdance, um, this incredible academic article that I found and I am going to... F- forget or butcher the name of the person who wrote it. I think his name is Marco Canavita. Um, But it's basically about how this idea that like MTV ruined movies or even the idea of an MTV aesthetic in movies is completely ahistoric. Um, The things that people are criticizing in movies like Flashdance or Top Gun for being influenced by MTV the actual things they're criticizing are things that were in Easy Rider or American Graffiti, you know? Um, it's like the use of pop music, cutting to pop music, montages. Um, and it's not like those movies invented those things either. I mean, you can go back to Busby Berkeley musicals for a lot of this. So um, I I think that there was this sense of like, uh, you know, fairly or otherwise, because I, I certainly was doing it at age eight or nine, but I think there was this idea that young people were becoming zombies just watching MTV. Um, and so that was going to somehow kill cinema um, on its own because nobody would want to have the attention span to watch movies. And then when the movies start having some of the same aesthetic that people associate with MTV, you know, that's just a sign of, of the end of history. Right. Um, and and really I mean, it's just kind of like the aesthetics of the 80s more anything else. I'm sorry? It's, it's really just more of the aesthetics of the 80s asserting itself. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff was in commercials too. Um, it wasn't just MTV, and and obviously people like Ridley Scott and Adrian Lyne and other filmmakers were working in all three, all in movies, music videos, and commercials. Right, and Fincher kind of coming up into it from totally. the late '80s into the '90s. 
I mean, it seems yeah. like 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 that kind of argument that okay, that's there's there's an MTV aesthetic that's taking over movies. That feels like more of a late '90s, early aughts thing. Like when you have, I think particularly when you have like hype Williams and McGee moving <laughs> into movies, where like they really are just carrying over like the the way you would shoot an MTV video into the cinema, uh, like a straight up movie. Yeah, and then maybe the criticism is is fair when it comes to a McGee movie. Um, I know that when I saw Belly, I was, you know, as somebody who like wasn't even that into hip hop and wasn't really that into the music of that Hype Williams was generally directing uh, music videos for, I was like, give me more movies that look like Belly. Yeah, because it I'm- felt so exciting visually. Yeah, I'm even thinking like kind of like to the mid '90s, where like uh, Larry Clark's Kids looks like mm. like a, a 120 minutes kind of music video. <laughs> yeah, which is the only reason why it makes sense that Folk Implosion does the soundtrack. <laughs> Fantastic soundtrack. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's one of those movies where it's like, do it, is my sentiment for that movie entirely because I was 15 when I saw it? I don't know. Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to rewatch it. Oh God! There that that was a really weird thing where uh, Chloe Seventy's like first like two or three movies had her like uh, the the climax of the movie in some way just being like oh I've lost my virginity and now I have a venereal disease. <laughs> it was a very strange motif to have earlier in your career, totally. but it's the most '90s motif to have in your career. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I, I think we've completed an arc here, and we can wrap up. <laughs> Um, okay cool this was fun thank you yeah such a pleasure to talk to you um how can people find uh you must remember this well you can go to you must remember this podcast.com it's both a url and a mnemonic um and you can of course find it on um apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you get your podcasts um and we're on twitter at remember this pod and on facebook and instagram as well and we're on patreon Oh, wow. What are the, do you have cool bonuses for the Patreon? So it's definitely more active when we are in a season. And by the time this comes out, our season might have just ended. But um, basically, the week before an episode comes out, there are different tiers that you can subscribe to. And so you can get um, a preview of what the episode is going to be about and what movies to watch to um, prepare. You either can get like just the names of the movies or you can get an audio podcast about it or you can get a video podcast about it. Thank you so much for talking. Uh, Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This was really fun. Bye.